I remember talking to a three-star retiring out of the joint staff. He's like, if it's this hard for me to transition and retire out, how hard is it for my E4? He's like, welcome to the world, sir. I went through the transition course twice because you can go 24 months and 12 months. I was at the Pentagon, which is a pretty elite group of people. And in both instances, I was the only guy in the room who had more than 90 days left. There are O5s, O4s, E9s, E8s. They have no idea what they're going to do. Like, here's a website. Good luck. Transition is a fire hose. Thankfully, I had a sense of a is that much of it? Is that not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 72 features Air Force veteran and nonprofit leader, Chris Ford. He founded and served as the CEO for NAVSO before pivoting to become the CEO of Stop Soldier Suicide, an organization that is on track to reduce veteran suicide to national parity before 2030. Chris and I worked together when I led the agency team that launched Roger, the wellness subbrand within SSS that directly serves our community on the mental health front. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right. Good morning. Chris Ford, welcome to Veteran Made. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Kerry. Awesome to see you again. Glad to be here. Thanks. Man, absolutely. Happy holidays to everybody out there. We are uh, we're recording this the Monday after Thanksgiving, and this will go live before Christmas. So we're right in the thick of of the end of the year. Uh, it's been a, been a great year for you and in the lead up to some work that you've been doing with your organization. So I would love to start with just a bit of a primer for our audience, ground us in know who you are, where and when you served, um, and then I'll jump into some questions from there. Yeah, awesome. Again, thanks, Kerry. Thanks for having me today. Great to be here. As always, always awesome to spend some time with you uh, on video or otherwise. Um, I served in the Air Force 20 years, so fresh out of uh, high school, I went to the Air Force Academy. I was fortunate enough to go there, um, start my military career uh, as a grad from the Academy, and uh, thought I'd go there and be a pilot and an engineer. And I took my first engineering classes and realized that wasn't for me. And then uh, I flew uh, the Cessnas there. And while challenging, again, that really wasn't for me. But I had a really formative experience there where I got to lead people. So I was the Siri um, school commander um, one summer. So I got to lead enlisted and cadet folks running through the DOD schoolhouse when it was still there. And uh, I really found that leading people was kind of my jam. So. I looked at the career fields in the Air Force and said, where can I go do that? And there were three at the time, maintenance, hospital admin, and security forces. And I put my name in the ring for security forces. So I did that for 20 years uh, around the globe, around the U.S., several combat deployments, served at the Pentagon twice. I wasn't smart enough to avoid that place twice, so I was a repeat offender at the Pentagon. And uh, really, really great experiences, but um, proud of our service. We did 20 years, zero months, zero days. My family enjoyed the ride. Uh, it was a great experience, really formative um, to my experiences after. So it was, uh, it was really a great journey. 
Uh, so you, I actually just realized this. You are the first Air Force Academy grad that we've had on the on the show. Had some some West Pointers and had some Annapolis folks. Um, this is not a a service story podcast. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I, I don't want to yeah. um, actually run away from the opportunity to to ask you about something you just said. So uh, I think it's really cool. Because we, so many people, right, think of like, oh, I want to join the military and I want to go do the coolest thing that the military has to offer, right? It tends to be aviation or special operations. Um, not a lot of people have the courage actually to to say, hey, I put myself in a position to go try that thing. And actually, I've decided it's not for me. Let me look at the other opportunities. Can you talk about yourself at that age? Go back to that time and and kind of unpack for us. What was it like for you to have those experiences, decide they weren't for you, kind of have that maturity uh, and then also look at those other three career fields, ones that, that that maybe folks might think are the exact opposite of what you maybe went to go find and, and looking and say, wow, I actually really want to go lean into those. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, life is full of zigs and zags, for sure. There's never a straight line in anything, especially in business, uh, in anything else in life. And um, again, I, I went to the Air Force Academy because I wanted to fly. The Thunderbirds literally flew over my house every other summer as they flew at Niagara Falls Air Show. And two mentors in my life both served in the Army Reserves as officers, my neighbor's father and my lacrosse coach. And so while my parents divorced when I was five and my father wasn't a big influence on my military decision, those two men were. And yeah, who doesn't want to go fly an F-16 and the Thunderbirds and do all these amazing things. So I thought that's what I was going to do. And again, I got there and I, I was very good at math. I was going to be an engineering major. Um, but, you know, at 18 or 19, you don't know anything. I thought I knew things. <laughs> but like most people who go to any college, changing your major happens pretty quickly. I was actually a pre-med slash biology major uh, in my final decision, mostly influenced by everyone in my family serving in the medical profession one way or another from my mom to my, my brothers to my sisters-in-law. Um, so, you know, it was, it was really just taking a moment and saying, flying was interesting. Candidly, I didn't, I wasn't great at it. Like on a scale of five to, you know, one, one to 10, I'm like a five, I could do it mechanically, but I didn't have like the hands. Like some people just have this natural thing. I did not have that. It was a forcing function for me to very mechanically be good at flying. Um, and again, I, I really liked being around people. I got to lead people and work with people. And I found that super interesting. And so when I looked at those three career fields, hospital admin seemed like a natural one, given my degree, I was like, yeah, I'm not sure I really want to get into healthcare and aircraft maintenance. Again, same kind of thing. It didn't really have like this feel to it. So I was like, maybe security forces is where I want to go. Uh, and thankfully, there, uh, there were 12 of us that got picked out of my class uh, that went went to that career field. And it was really amazing. It was so great. It wasn't where I thought I'd go. My first duty station, I didn't even know uh, Shaw Air Force Base, Sumter, South Carolina existed. It wasn't on my list. <laughs> like so many things just kind of happened um, coincidentally or not. And, you know, the, the great thing about that career field for me is that everywhere I went and I did not have any garden spot assignments. I went from South Carolina to Grand Forks, North Dakota, to Little Rock, Arkansas, Abilene, Texas. Like these aren't the places that people put on their dream list all the time, but I always had great bosses uh, who gave me more responsibility than I deserved based on my rank. 
and uh, they gave me opportunities to learn and thrive. So it was really a, a great decision, uh, and I didn't know it at the time. It's great. I um, <clears throat> it's interesting. The, for we've had some maintenance officers on the show, one maintenance officer on the show, um, and <clears throat> it's interesting because with I think you probably made the right choice, um, especially you know given uh, somebody else who's going to be on this month, Dave Coker with. Fisher House uh, Foundation calls himself a recovering hospital administrator um, because he spent time in the Army Medical Corps. So you probably made the right decision there. And then with maintenance officers, right, it's the one it's one of those career fields in the military. It's interesting because the officers don't actually do what the enlisted folks do. Right. It's it's just administration. And so the leading I had some great, great maintenance officers um, that I served under in the military. But I did observe even at my young age as an enlisted um, you know, bomb loader on the flight line, I, I observed how difficult it must be to lead a squadron as a maintenance officer, because you're not actually out there all the time, uh, you know, say like a security forces officer is, or an infantry officer might be, or service warfare officer might be, or something like that, right? So um, I definitely think you made, made made the right call. And and it's also interesting, I, I've been reflecting on this season and driving back from, from South Carolina uh, yesterday, I, I was kind of thinking about um, the you know, growing up as an English guy and literature nerd growing up with Shakespeare, know thyself. Right. And it's like this, this, um, kind of thing that gets said a lot. And I think it's very trite and people don't often realize how important it actually is, but you knew yourself first. And that probably is what gave you the opportunity to be such a strong leader of other people because you had that self-awareness young, which, um, you know, I, I certainly didn't have. And, probably don't even have yet. Right. It's something we're all, we're all working towards. So, um, thank, thank, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, so I'd love, I'd love to, to jump into your time, just jump ahead to, uh, to, to your, your second tour at the Pentagon and, and what was that process like for you to transition out of the military from that duty station? What, what paint the picture for what life and work was like for you and, and why you made the decision to retire when you did and, and, and what you got into? Yeah, it's crazy. Again, uh, you know, my, my plan was to do either 20 or 26 years in uniform. And there was really nothing in between because once you I was actually selected to go to Army War College uh, and I was up for early promotion to full colonel and I was going to get uh, the highest recommendation one year below the zone. Um, they call it the silver bullet. Like if there's one person to give, give it to Chris. And so I was I was teeter-tottering. I was going to stay in or get out. And there, I knew that if I had to, if I got promoted and I went to school, I'd have to pay back six years. We'd probably move every year, if not every 18 months. And by then we had moved every other year already. So we've, we'd done our bit of moving around. And so I had this one moment where I had to go home to my wife and say, hey, the vice director of the joint staff wants to give me the silver bullet, which would guarantee promotion to 06, go to Armand War College, pay that back three years, pay back promotion three years. We're either out now or we're doing six more years. What do you want to do? And we gave a lot of thought and prayer and, and talked with our family and decided, hey, I think we're I think we're done. And I didn't want to continue to ride that fence much longer because I knew if I got that silver bullet and declined it, they don't give it to, they can't give it to someone else. It's gone. Somebody's losing that promotion. So I uh, went back to my boss the next day and said, I think we're gonna retire. And he appreciated the candor and we made that decision. Uh, what I had found what really tipped the scales on that decision for us was one, we had, we had moved a lot. We were, we were ready to settle a bit more as a family. Um, two, my last tour on the joint staff, I got to work in this really interesting startup 
office called the Chairman's Office of Reintegration. Uh, it was formerly known as Warrior and Family Support, but there was like six of us in this office and our whole job was to go around the country on behalf of the chairman and help communities think about if and how they might be involved in service member transition and veteran integration. So we were best practice sharers going around the country and saying, hey, you're in Los Angeles, this is what Chicago is doing, or you're in this small town, here's what this other small town is doing, and here's why you might consider being involved uh, in helping those who've served settle back into your communities. And it was amazing. Uh, as you can imagine, traveling around the country on behalf of the chairman, everybody opens their door for you. So I got to meet philanthropists, civic leaders, uh, nonprofit organizations, agency leaders all across the country. And I quickly found that many of them were struggling with the same issues. They just didn't know how to do it well. And so as I looked at the market, I realized there was back then like 48,000 nonprofits serving the veteran and military community. And there was no trade association um, backstopping them with best practices, help them find funding, help them find efficiencies. So I crafted this terrible business plan. Uh, and uh, when I retired, that's what I decided to do was, was launch that association uh, to serve the, those organizations in a B2B relationship to help them do work better, much like I was already doing on the joint staff. I was a knowledge broker. I was connecting organization A with organization B that had the same problem. I said, you guys don't have to reinvent this, like connect. And they were doing it. So I served as a knowledge broker in uniform in my last tour. And I was able to recreate that in an association environment um, and scale that up for a few years. My personal transition from uniform to startup as an entrepreneur was a bit rough, uh, but not as rough as many, obviously. Some people go through some really difficult times. I remember talking to a three-star who was retiring out of the joint staff. He's like, if it's this hard for me to transition and retire out, how hard is it for my E4? Like, I was like, welcome to the world, sir. Like, it is, it is, can be really hard. And I remember I went through the transition course twice because you can go at like 24 months and one at 12 months. I was at the Pentagon, which is a pretty elite group of people. Um, and in both instances, I was the only guy in the room who had more than 90 days left. Like I'm there 24 months before my retirement date, 12 months before my retirement. There are O5s, O4s, E9s, E8s. They all have less than 90 days. They have no idea what they're gonna do. They were really like freaking out. <laughs> And all this stuff is thrown at them, right? And they're just like, hey, you got let's write a resume. Let's learn how to, you know, here's your benefits. Like, here's a website, like, good luck. Oh, and here's your, your uh, PCS or retirement decoration. Um, so transition is a fire hose. Um, thankfully, I had a sense of a plan around uh, creating an association. Uh, I still dabbled putting jobs into my background, which was in force protection, security, um, anti-terrorism. So I was putting in applications for some of those jobs as kind of my safe bet. But what I really wanted to do was go focus on serving this community to ensure smoother outcomes for those that had served. Two things I want to double tap on there. <clears throat> One, um, you said you were writing a bad business plan. I'm curious what what you felt like that meant at the time, what you feel like it means now. And, and if you were doing that by yourself um, and just kind of like what that process looked like. Number one, and then number two, uh, the 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 importance of having those backup opportunities as you as you transition out and and think about those things. You obviously had foresight and and more wisdom. Sounds like than most of your peers there at the at the time. 
Um, so w- was there any connection between the, those those two those two things as you had the backup and and what you were trying to do but but didn't maybe feel like had the fidelity you needed what, what was that like at that time yeah I, I went through the boots to business program because uh, I didn't have an MBA so in my transition I went through that offering for free to you know get a certificate in business if you will to start to figure out what a good business plan would look like I say terrible it was like nine pages because I'd never done one before right but I knew the general uh, opportunity in the market. I knew there was a gap. So I spent a lot of my time just talking with the organizations that would hopefully be my members to say, what keeps you up at night? Like, what are you struggling with? And nine times out of 10, it was resources. It was money, 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 money. They needed more sustainable, predictable revenue. I'm like, huh, I wonder if we can solve for that. Uh, So my first value proposition design was to consider how can we help organizations find funding faster. And so we found this interesting tool that we're able to white label um, and it created a geographic snapshot of billions of dollars of philanthropic investment into veteran and military causes so that uh, organizations could better prospect their pipeline to find funding to sustain their organizations. And that immediately created value. Uh, So that's why we were successful out of the gate. The, the plan B's, honestly, were, were really from a f- place of fear um, that, you know, I'm the I'm the primary breadwinner in my family. I still had kids that had to go to college. I, <laughs> I had a moderate uh, retirement uh, soon to have a uh, moderate disability uh, rating. And but, you know, it was all on me. And I'll never forget this day. I had been out a few months and I was really struggling to bring this association to market. And I had a $50,000 pledge from another nonprofit who saw the value of what we were trying to do. And my board uh, that I had recruited said I could start pulling salary when I match that. Make it 100 and you can start pulling some income for this work. So I spent my 40 hour day job was to try and refine the value proposition, bring it to market and figure out how to get that extra $50,000. And I was just struggling so hard to bring that to life. And I'll never forget this day. It was like a Friday. We were still in Northern Virginia and it was, should have put my eight hours in. I'm doing my 40 hours a week on this business. And I said, all right, I'm not doing that today. And I literally said, God, if you want this for me, or if it's just, just me scraping for this thing, like close this door. But if this is a door you've opened for me, this is a path you want, I need you to show up. And I literally spent the entire day outside just doing yard work and catching up on yard work, listening to music. And all of a sudden by late afternoon, my, like, my f- phone is blowing up with text messages from this prospective funder. He's like, tell me again how much you need and why and what we do with it. And I was annoyed because I'm trying to cut my lawn and weed eat and all this stuff. And then finally, like I just stopped, sat down and I answered a question, answered another question. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll match it $50,000. And I was like, holy cow, this just happened. Like, this is a real thing. It was so exciting. It's so scary at the same time. Uh, I mean, you know, you, your, your own experiences in creating veteran made and starting your own venture. There's a lot of competitive advantages that you need to have. And I think I had those. I understand the community better than most, uh, more broadly from a national perspective uh, because of my interactions in that last tour in the, in the joint staff and traveling around the country. Um, so I knew I had a competitive advantage. I knew that um, my time in the military had created for me a logical framework to work through problem solving. I moved every other year, so I had to very quickly get into the unit, 
understand my role, understand the pain points, figure out solutions to those pain points and get them in market, if you will, or in the, in the mission um, before I would PCS to my next duty station. So that um, speed to market action bias, those two things really paid off in that transition to be tenacious to bring it, bring it to life. What was the transition like from building kind of a, a broad coalition of, of VSOs and connecting them, like you said, being being a knowledge broker that uh, that allows them to solve problems at their level with each other um, and, and kind of pr- provide funding? When did your focus become? All right, I want to I want to lead an organization that focuses on one of these problems, and I want to go attack that. Yeah, interesting. So uh, what part of the business model of my association was to provide contracted services to philanthropic organizations, companies, or nonprofits who wanted some external perspectives on how they might do those things better. And one of our customers was Stop Soldier Suicide. I got to meet the co-founders there. Nick Black in particular met him at a startup event. It was a Bunker Labs event, uh, coincidentally, in the Raleigh area. And then I had moved to Charleston and so did he. And so we started connecting uh, and I spent some time with him. And so we were going to do this uh, human centered design summit and pull that off for them in DC with a collection of technologists and other innovators to think about how might we attack the military suicide problem differently. And the deeper I got into the work, into the thinking of the board, in an atypical way, I was really energized about the idea of, to your point, going really narrow and deep into one problem. As complex as the problem is, as big as the problem is, as audacious as the goal might be, I was like, this could be really interesting. And so Nick and I would joke, they had a leadership gap. We, we worked in a co-work space together periodically a few days a week. And he'd get frustrated with some of the gaps they had in leadership and what wasn't working. And I would, I would be there for my, my day job. He's there for his day job. And I'm like, well, if you just hire me, you know, I can solve these problems. And we'd go back to our day jobs. And that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then I finally threw my, my name in the hat and ultimately started here at Stop Slaughter Suicide, January 1st of 2019. Um, and it was, that transition was scary too. I got to tell you that I created my association with blood, sweat, and tears. I was employee one. By the time we were done, we had five or six employees. And handing that off to a new CEO, um, having poured so much into it was scary. Going into a new organization. I'm not a clinician. What do I know about suicide intervention or prevention? Uh, But I know how to lead teams and I know how to solve and look at complex problems. So it was a scary transition uh, like any, uh, but so glad I, I took that step into something so important, uh, and something, um, so deep. One of the things about <clears throat> veteran made is not, not a nonprofit, uh, not even a for-profit yet. There's no, no <laughs> revenue being generated. Uh, you're pre-revenue. That's all right. You're pre-revenue. Yeah, exactly. We're working on that. Um, but, uh, but w- one of the things, you know, that I, I try to, I try to focus here, right. We, I have, we have a, we have a, a mission, which is to serve, uh, the military service and veteran population that want to get into creative and entrepreneurial fields, right? And a lot of times there's a lot of overlap. Um, and a lot of times there are things about being an entrepreneur that are creative and there are things about creativity that require kind of that entrepreneurial mindset, right? And so I try to stay as narrowly focused as I can 
uh, while providing value while also not dismissing that there are other fields and other interests, nonprofits and some others kind of, kind of you know, floating in that in that capacity. Um, and one thing I think about often as I as I interview different people about different things is I, I'm struck by the, the the wide range of services, the wide range of issues and challenges, the wide range of of things affecting our community. And I often think as I as I speak to somebody who's maybe solving for one problem like yourself or or one person who's going down one one kind of particular path as they pursue a specific outcome that they're that they're looking for in a specific field. I'm just I'm struck and overwhelmed by by just that idea of like how much is out there within our community. Was there anything like that for you as you thought, man, this is obviously a very important problem to solve, arguably the most important problem to solve in our community. Um, but I'm I'm leaving behind all of these other challenges and issues that are also facing our community was, was there was overwhelm at all a, a, a part of that or or kind of in in your mind as you were as you were working towards this next transition yeah i you know the members we had in our association touched everything employment transition housing financial stability care packages you name it right military spouse employment military advocacy so it was really hard uh, from a B2B relationship to meet all of their needs um, because of their unique focus. They all needed money. That was easy to work against because they all needed more money, right? So find that core problem, drive value. Uh, and that's where we really tried to focus. Um, it, was, it was also uh, a bit hard for me because I was so far removed from impact. I was an association helping members provide value to their constituents. Like I was three steps removed from the impact. And it was hard to get the feeling like, how are we driving your mission? We're not getting to touch the actual client at the end of that relationship. So the idea of coming over to Stop Soldier Suicide, uh, like any direct service provider that's providing values, you get closer to the client or the veteran or the patient, you know, whoever you're, you're impacting. And man, that's, that's amazing. Like, yeah, our cause is super weighty. Suicide rates are up. Uh, veterans are more likely to die by their own hand than those that haven't served. Uh, I believe it is a, a massive tragedy that's mostly avoidable uh, with the right interventions and tools. Um, but uh, getting close to the clients uh, and their experiences with our services and our amazing staff is so rewarding. Like we, every other week we do, we call it value preposition design. We do a case study looking at one client's experience and journey while in service, their connection to us and how they're doing since they've been with us. And it's so good to get grounded the entire staff, everybody on the staff, like 90 of us are on this zoom call hearing about one client's journey and how we've transformed their lives. And what's amazing is we've served over 5,000 clients since I've been here. We've never lost an active client to suicide. Like what we're doing is working. We're in the life-saving business. I tell people, we don't work in a morgue. This isn't depressing here. This is exciting. It's really amazing. Um, and that is what fuels us every day. The cause is weighty. The risks are high. Lives are literally at stake. But to get this close to people who've been teetering on the edge with suicidal thoughts and behaviors or have prior attempts and to give them new tools that now they can thrive, it's amazing. Uh, and I, I want to be clear, like a vast majority of veterans today are thriving in their second act, right? Whatever they did in uniform, four years, 40 years, anything in between, uh, a vast majority 
go on to go back into their communities, get an, a job, provide for their families, volunteer in the PTA, coach the little league. Like there's a lot of social proof that shows veterans are incredibly valuable assets in their communities, but there's many who struggle with unemployment, homelessness, suicidal thoughts, depression, PTS, you name it. And so it feels great to be, uh, I think, you know, seeing the direct impact we're having to reverse the course of those people's lives who've had a really significant downturn since they served. So as you made that transition with Nick, um, what was, uh, how did you immediately action filling those leadership gaps, right? That you had been talking to him about for, for weeks previous. Uh, and then the decision was made and, and you started, um, you're at your new squadron, right? Like you're ready, you're ready to, you're, you're ready to, to, to come in and you have a bit of an understanding of what the challenges are. How did you initially attack those? Um, and, and, and what was that like to have, I don't want to say like a, a runway, but you kind of had this insight, right. From, from sitting, from sitting with Nick and, and having some of these conversations, what was jumping right in like for you? Well, I had a, I had an advantage because again, we held this human centered design summit in December of 18 and we wrote the report for stop soldier suicide. And I was the author and recipient of the report. <laughs> so as a consultant, I drafted my own playbook to hand myself as the CEO a month later. Uh, that helped uh, open up the ideas of what we might consider. My my first charge by the board was really to reimagine a life-saving service. The organization had been around eight years at the time. Uh, it helped hundreds, if not thousands, of veterans and service members with a variety of needs, but we didn't really have a suicide-specific intervention, and we didn't know what it might look like. Thankfully, hired six months before me was our chief program officer, Keith Hodel, who had lived experience and had been working in this field for most of his adult career. Um, literally a genius, like Menza kind of guy. Uh, so we looked at uh, each other and said, well, what might this look like? So we created the scientific advisory board of national and international experts in various aspects of suicide prevention, intervention, crisis intervention, and said, what do you think works? And we pull all these pieces together. So we spent the first couple of years really just focusing on rebuilding a service model that we could attribute to saving a life. We didn't want to be gray and, and claim that we're helping veterans and not knowing if we're actually driving the mission outcomes we want. So a majority of the hires in my new squadron, if you will, were really focused on building up professional capacity in our wellness center, as we called it. We went from interns to social workers to now licensed clinicians with a clinical psychologist on staff, like three PhDs on the team, researchers, the whole thing. So that was mission priority one. And the good news is, you know, we had pretty good cash in the bank at the time. So I had runway to focus my energies on building an impactful evidence-based intervention that we could hang our hat on. I didn't want to go and try and raise money against some failed promise that we were actually saving lives until I could prove we were doing it. So that was priority one. Um, we also knew that we needed to do better with revenue to scale the model. So we brought in a chief growth officer who had amazing marketing experiences uh, from um, American Cancer Society, and she started building a team. Then we brought in data scientists and researchers to help us look at the data. We really believe data is the key. Uh, business advantage we have to better understand risk. So it was really just thinking about what are the next 
hires and the next steps we need to take. There's this great McKinsey article about entrepreneurship that I always go back to. It talks about the entrepreneur journey as this analogy, like picture yourself on a riverbank looking across the river, which is mostly clouded in fog. But you can see the hilltop on the other side and where you want to be. Maybe it's a tree or a, or a, a cabin. But you can't see the river very clearly. You can see like three stepping stones. The rest is all in the fog. So entrepreneurship is like, I know where I want to go. I want to be on the other side of that river up next to that tree. I don't know the path to get there, but I can see the next three steps I can take to cross this river. I'm going to take those three steps. And so we've always tried to approach it that way. We don't know what 2030 looks like. That's our aspirational goal is to reduce suicide rates to national parity by 2030. I don't have all the answers between here and there. And I always knew what are the next three things we need to do as a business to get closer, to get clarity and start getting through that fog. Um, and step one, two, and three was building that, that service model out the gate with a, with a new team uh, and a new approach. Here, I say, um, do the work that is right in front of you and see what happens. 100%. What you need to emerge out of that path will emerge based on the work that you're, it's not a woo thing, right? based on the work that you're doing, there's three steps that are right in front of you that you know you can action right now, the next three steps will emerge, but you have to do that work first. And it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the 2030 goal in 2023, but it is much easier to do that first step of three. And it's obviously important to have a little bit of, a little bit of um, you know, s- something in the distance, which is, I-, I like that you have three steps that you can take, right? Like people always think like, oh, just, you gotta, you know, in, to work out in the morning, like you, you got to get to the gym. It's like, no, no, no. You got to swing your feet over the bed, put your feet on the floor. That's the first thing you got to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, you got to do the first sure. thing that's right there. Well, where do you as a CEO, I'm going to kind of jump around in the SSS journey for you a little bit here, if you don't mind. Uh, wh- where do you as a CEO uh, of a nonprofit, draw, where do you draw the line between um, leading people and developing product, right? Like, as I, as I hear you talk about this, like you've been focused on product uh, from from the jump, right? That was one of your charges, but you've also along the way been focused on bringing in the right people, not just talent acquisition, but talent deployment and actually leading those people while you are not the subject matter expert on the, on the, the kind of product that you're developing. What's your philosophy around that? How do you, where do you draw the line between, between product and people? Yeah, I think we have, I'll just use my experiences here. Uh, I have to be careful, right? I, I had uh, a mentor remind me, he was in a position of influence. And he said, um, be careful when you're a leader, uh, watch what you say, you might be wrong. It carries disproportionate weight when you're the CEO. So I have to be careful. Uh, I think I have unique perspectives and experiences in looking at problems in a very unique way and connecting disparate dots that may not be obvious to everyone and helping people think through how they might act on that opportunity. So in this case, uh, we knew we needed people to deploy the product. Nothing that we do happens without the people. So it was really about bringing in the right talent with the right set of experiences who can help us start actioning on our theory of change. Um, my whole professional and adult life, I was rarely the expert in a certain thing. Uh, now, obviously, in security forces, I had a domain expertise, but I had logisticians who were assigned to me. I had intelligence specialists take on to me. I was take on to the army in Iraq. Like I had to understand the unique skills and experiences and tools in their toolkit to leverage them for the greater mission. And that's been no different here. 
I am not a clinician. I am not a data scientist. I am not a finance expert. I am not a marketer. I have to know how to use all of those levers together to deploy those resources in an effectual way to get the desired outcome. So um, one of the big things we had to focus on here with this chaotic growth, because when I started, we were like two and a half million in revenue. I was employee number 17. I was the first remote employee. Everybody else was in Research Triangle Park. I was commuting up from Charleston four hours away every other week for uh, the first year. Uh, but now we're almost 90 employees, $20 million in revenue, and we're all over the country. It's, it's been chaotic growth. So it was always focusing on the next hire, adding value, upskilling the organization to fill a gap that we saw we needed to fill that we could no longer fill with an outside vendor. Um, but we have three levers. We have people, we have resources, money, and we have data and technology. Those three things are the three levers I try to focus on. Um, and the, I had another mentor remind me the best thing you can do as a, as a leader is hiring. Your hiring decisions really change the trajectory of your organization. You either get a flat hire where no, you know, value, value, you get a downgrade, make mishire, and it takes you backwards. Or you have like this exponential growth where you're like, bring in the right person. They're going to solve so many more problems for you. And we've seen that here at Subsolder Suicide. I remember the first time we hired, um, I find this with like new roles, especially. We have a lot of clinicians on our staff. So you bring in a clinician, they have great skills and experiences and it's amazing. But you bring in a role that's never been around. Like we hired a talent manager, a recruiter, and we never had one before. We had a vendor. And to watch the expertise she brought into the organization, I'm like, I had no idea that was a thing. That's a thing. She's like, yeah, we just do this. This Because I had this whole list of stuff we had to fix. I'm like, Lindsay, we got to fix this, 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 this. She goes, yeah, those are interesting. We're not doing any of those. Let me tell you about my expertise in doing this, right? So it's a balance between doing the work and leading the people and coaching the people to work, um, focusing on the right products and services that add value um, and staying focused. It is so hard to say no to shiny objects. It's so hard to stay narrowly focused uh, on your value proposition and where you can uh, allocate your limited resources, but it's essential uh, in any business for profit or not. Yeah, you, you don't want to hire culture fits. You want to hire culture ads, right? <clears throat> for a long time, we were, we were obsessed with culture fit, culture fit. No, no, I want you to bring something to this culture. I don't want you to just slot right in. First time I realized that your organization was was different than others in the space when I was working with Obviously, with with Tina as my direct client, when I was uh, at my previous ad agency, and um, she and I had a, a couple of conversations, and and by the third or fourth conversations, she said, "Carrie, do not treat me like a nonprofit. Treat me like you're selling razors, right? Like we had we had we had we had worked with Gillette previously, right? As as a client, and she said, treat me like that client. Like the the value that we are trying to bring here to this organization, from a marketing perspective." It is not like some woo-woo nonprofit. Like it isn't like we have a mission that we are on. Treat me as such. And I thought that was just like such a such a, a cool thing. It's such a freeing thing on on our end as the as the creative you know pr provider for the work that we were doing as we were working with with the the main brand and then and then launching launching Roger. How do you um, with with Lindsay as an example? Um, what do you do as a leader to make 
a brand new hire feel comfortable to come in and say, hey, thanks, Chris, I appreciate your insight. However, it's a little bit off base. Can we look at this? That's not something that's very normal. What have you developed through the culture at, at Stop Soldier Suicide that allows for that kind of thing pretty immediately? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it goes back to my time in the military. I was always try. I always tried to be a collaborative leader, right? I, I came in, I was the show me state lieutenant. Like I got snowballed once by like a senior NCO. Oh, you're good LT, just sign it. And it was BS, right? I was like, oh, thanks. Never do that again. So I always look for backup and details. Um, but aside from those details, uh, we do a couple things here uh, that I think differentiate us and really sit with our culture. One, uh, every new hire gets mailed not only a swag packet, but they get two books. Radical Candor, I'm a big fan of Radical Candor, Care Deeply, Challenge, challenge Directly. So we believe that. And, and that book will tell you that as a leader like me, I have to be openly asking for feedback and take it, even if it stings. If I'm not asking and not getting defensive, no one else is going to speak up. So we really deploy radical candor here. We give it to people to read. We have workshops. Uh, we have a boot camp where people go through like a week long unpacking of radical candor. We give them also give them the first 90 days by Watkins to really focus on how do you uh, bend the learning curve in your first 90 days to start adding value instead of being a net consumer of, of information early on. Um, and uh, I, I do a couple other things that are a little unusual, which I I thought we're adding value and I wasn't certain until I heard it back from our staff. One, I call every new hire um, directly, usually within a few days when they accept their offer letter. I just pick up the phone and call them. Most go to voicemail. They don't recognize my number. They're not answering spam. Um, and just say, hey, we're so excited you're joining the team. If there's anything we could do, let us know. And what I found was I was talking to some employees at our annual summit. They, they keep my voicemail on their phone. Like a year later, they still have my voicemail. I'm like, what are you talking about? The only voicemails I have are from my mom who passed away several years ago. Everything else gets deleted. But they were keeping that. They were like, what CEO calls every new hire to welcome them to the team? The second thing I would do is within the first month of their time with us is I do a one-on-one -on -one just to check in. Hey, you've been here a month. What's working? What's not? Uh, did the recruitment ideas match your experience once you got here? What are your perspectives? You have a fresh set of eyes. So... I try to just connect with people more directly um, and encourage them to challenge my thinking. I say it often, look, I'm not the expert here. I'm the guy furthest from the facts. You're closer to the facts. You have an expertise. What are your views? I try to get those first before telling my own. Cause I know once I say something, again, it carries disproportionate weight. It may shut people down and, and look, I am not perfect at this. I get focused on shiny objects. I can be the king of over-engineering. I, I go for a 20 mile bike ride, preparing for a triathlon. I come back with 10 new ideas. Like I could be terrible at this stuff, but uh, what's great is our senior leadership team in particular has learned that it's okay to push back on me and tell me I, I, I don't, that they don't see it the same way and that I might be wrong or that it's not the right priority or it's not the right time. So it's, it can be uncomfortable for a lot of folks, but I think it's just authentically who I, who I am as a leader of after the last 30 years of leading. Oh, they're lucky to have you. Uh, okay, time check, because I have several things I still want to talk to you about. We technically have nine minutes left. What's on, Do you have something directly on your calendar after this? 
I do. Yeah. Unfortunately. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll have you back. It's obviously, we talk time anyway, so we'll just, we'll just start recording these conversations. Um, okay, uh, let's let's dive quickly into what what Stop Social Suicide has been working on up to this point uh, with with uh, Project Black Box and and where that is, and then and then we'll finish up with our with our open ended questions. Yeah, Plot, uh, Black Box Project has been amazing. So over four years ago. I was introduced to who is now our CTO, Glenn, and I had this, we had this hypothesis. What if the techniques we used overseas to do cell phone exploitation could be applied to other problem sets? I mean, these are techniques that have been used to disrupt human trafficking, terrorist networks, narcotic networks, uh, accessing cellular data to understand user behavior. So our hypothesis was, what if we could get donated devices from families who lost a veteran or service member to suicide access the device, make a forensic copy, do some analysis and recreate the last year of life. And gosh, test after test, we had to run through to see if this thing would work. Test one was, would any family actually donate a device from a, a decedent, a loved one and trust us with it? Uh, and that took months to figure out, to find, could we actually get people to trust us? And they did. And then once we got it, like, can we actually unlock it? Do we have the software to unlock these devices? And we didn't, so we got it and it worked. Can we get the data? Yes. So the, the tests went on and on. What's amazing is uh, much like the black box in uh, aviation, right? Until we had those, the only way to recreate what happened in an aircraft mishap was through investigators on the ground, collecting all the pieces and parts, taking them back to a warehouse, try to put them all back together and get any witness testimony you might be able to get if anyone saw it or survived. The black box changed the game because now it gave you all this voice and data through the recorders that recreated the whole trajectory of that flight to the mishap. Before that, we only had a decent picture of what might've happened. Same thing with suicide. Forensic um, autopsies, psych autopsies with friends, loved ones, coworkers, medical records, all this third-party data was heavily biased by the interviewer and the interviewee. And so it was an incomplete picture into what was really going on in the inner thoughts, feelings, uh, and behaviors of those that took their life. Black box project using forensic data donated from phones paints this picture for us in a much clearer way. So now we have unbiased data directly from the user around their sleep patterns, their movement, their sentiment, their outbound text, and um, looking at those data paints a much different picture in many cases, or a much clearer picture in all cases, as to what's really going on with those who've died by suicide. We have over 50 families that have donated over 100 devices to us. Our initial test data uh, has been, you know, small but mighty, and it's been really affirming to see that um, one families trust us with these data. They want to prevent other families from experiencing the grief they experience. So we're so grateful that they would trust us with those devices. Um, but I'll tell you what's, what's been great about this is we've learned some interesting things in our initial data set, because our hope is that we can use those findings looking back retrospectively to now be more proactive in how we do outreach activation and deliver care to those who are at risk, right? So in the test data we've looked at, in one example, we looked at like 500,000 outbound text messages from one device, incredible amounts of data. Um, we found at the six months prior to death and three months prior to death, 
three things were happening. One, anger and sentiment was going way up. Two, sleep patterns changed. They were going to bed later and they were getting less sleep. And three, they started to social isolate. The movement patterns we would expect them when they're healthy started to get really small and narrow. They were staying at home or wherever they wanted to isolate. Those things happen at six months, then they got a little bit better. Then they happen again at three months, then they got a little bit better. And then ultimately they took their life, um, which is interesting. So now I can say, okay, with those insights, how can we improve outreach to identify people who are at risk, who may be exhibiting those things? And those things happen at the same time. It wasn't like sleep happened over here and then sentiment happened. It was literally at six months, all those things tanked, all those things tanked again at three months, and then they ultimately died. What's so fascinating about this is completely different approach, different study, but it, it replicated the findings of a study done by a company called Quantify back in 2016, just looking at publicly available social media data for people who had suicide attempts and found the same thing six months, three months prior to attempt, these three things tanked. So in, I'm not a researcher, but in, in researcher terms, that's convergent evidence, which is really powerful, really affirming. So we think we're definitely on to something. Uh, other things we're seeing is suicide notes are thought to exist in like 15, 20% of people who die by suicide. We're finding in more than half the devices we look at, we see drafted and deleted suicide notes. So people are writing these things. So I'm just excited that the findings we're getting out of the initial data not only can help us do better outreach, activation, and care, but what can we teach the field so that they can be more in tune with the behaviors of other adults, service members or not, who might be struggling with suicide, where to find them, how to reach them, um, and how to prevent them from making an attempt or taking their lives. Yeah, quite a, um, quite a journey to be charged with innovating this to, to, to landing on, on, on this project that is, uh, that is showing these signs of, of opportunity for, for lived life, um, which, which is incredible. We'll definitely have you back on to chat, chat more in more detail, um, in the coming year. Um, as, as you keep going, we've been ending the show with an open-ended question. What's on your heart? What's on your mind for our community? Whether it's a piece of advice, something you just want to get off your chest or something you want to reiterate from, from this conversation. Uh, Chris, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I've been thinking about that question a lot lately, not knowing you were going to ask it. <laughs> um, I think for me, you know, the, the all-volunteer force is uh, an experiment since 1973. Um, we're one of the first countries to try a professionalized military force, professional NCO Corps, uh, and it's working, right? But there's indications recruitment numbers are down, not the first time that's ever happened. Um, and I'm seeing this discourse that, you know, DOD or VA or others are saying, asking veterans to help with this recruitment problem. And I'm, I'm seeing this other discourse where some veterans are angry saying, it's not on us. If you don't take better care of service members, eliminate military sexual trauma, create less toxic environment, provide safe, secure, healthy housing and benefits, or provide adequate services to veterans for those who served and are struggling, that's not for us to mask and figure out, like do better DOD, do better VA. I think I sit on both sides of that. And all that to say, if you uh, are in this community and if you've served, 
I think we all have an obligation. If we want to see the all volunteer force continue, that we should all be working in our own remit where we have an opportunity to improve outcomes for veterans, to improve the experience for military service members and their families, because the, the core of US military's might is not data, cyber, space, technology, missiles, bombs. I mean, those things are amazing. We'll always have a leading advantage in technology and armament. It's the people. And I think this community can often get fragmented and a bit um, edgy with each other saying, oh, you have a bronze star, but you don't have a V device. Uh, that's bullshit. Like, uh, oh, you were, you were in this branch and not that branch. Oh, you were an officer. You weren't enlisted. Oh, you were like figure out all the caveats that disqualify the credibility of someone's service. I think we need to stop that crap. It's fun when it's rivalry, army, Navy football game, whatever, that's fine. Um, but at the end of the day, I think we need to be a little more respectful to each other about the value of our service, the fact that we served and what we're trying to do after and give each other a little more grace. Um, because if we don't, it's just fratricide and it just, it's just hurtful to others who serve disqualifying the credibility of their service or the character of their service. And that's not going to help the next generation say, Hey, that's the club I want to be a part of. Um, so that, that's my thought is I think if we want to see the all volunteer force continue, we've got to do a better job of taking care of each other and focusing on improving, uh, the livelihood and outcomes of those who are serving and those who have served. Well said, uh, longer conversation there, obviously, which we will, we will have again and, and record, uh, but great answer. Appreciate your time. Uh, Chris, as always, well, I will, I'll work with the social team to collaborate on these posts for Instagram. So we, we get this content out there and um, be sure to, to um, get the website in the show notes um, and, uh, and blast that out on, on social as well. So we can, help drive some dollars to continue this mission. Um, appreciate you, sir. You as well. Thanks, Carrie. Have a good one. Appreciate right. you.